Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Can We Please Talk podcast. I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. So this week our topic is going to be around education, um, similar to what we did if you've been watching the show or listening to the show on, on Apple and Spotify podcast. Uh, we started with my experiences working in the media, and now we're going to turn to education, uh, an area of expertise for Nick, who has worked uh, in the field of education, you know, for close to 20 years, uh, teaching, but also now as an instructional coach. Um, Nick, how do you feel so much about the, uh, the topic we're going to be discussing tonight? Passionate. You know, we, you know, we talked pre-show about, um, you know, some of the, some of the topics that are on the table. And honestly, obviously we keep this show for everyone. We keep it realistic in time. You know, we, we are excited about people, you know, listening to this in a variety of ways on a train or on a bike wherever driving your car so we want to be realistic about how much time we're taking of your precious day obviously um, but when you ask me about education we could easily be here for hours because it's right. a fascinating conversation right. and it's multiple layered yeah so let's dive into it um because the first question i had for you was uh, what are some of the current challenges in the education system overall if you had to pinpoint uh some challenges that are being faced you know, uh, holistically, state, federal, um, local level, um, what, what are some of those challenges that the education system is facing right now? Well, I think actually the two words you said at the end is, I think, part of the challenge. You use the phrase education system. And when I think of education, conceptually, there's two things that come to mind as an American when we think of education. And it's education with a capital E, which is policy, it's the idea of school budgets, it's the talk about the role of teachers, it's this idea of education in concept. But the little e, education little e, is the idea of learning. What does it actually mean to educate children? What does it mean to educate adults? So I think first we have to have a, we have to have a conversation about, as a country, what is our vision for the, for the role of education? Um, there's an interesting podcast that had been put out a few, a few months ago from, I I think it was NPR, another, uh, another team had put it together called Nice White Parents. Nice White Parents talks about demographically in school, public schools in New York City, what is the role of white families? But one of the conversations that comes from that podcast is what is the role of school? And more pointedly, what are the roles of parents as, a, as it relates to school? So I'm kind of getting into now sort of the second thing is what I, what I would sort of commonly say is, we look at education as families, sometimes from the standpoint of almost like Burger King. Like it's this kind, it's a customer service model. We think about, well, I'm a parent, AKA taxpayer. I get to have a say in what goes on. And I think that idea of assuming that because you have financially contributed to this uh, construct, that you get to have a say that actually influences what happens. I think it's something we all have to call into question because we have to assume, not assume, we have to believe that the people who are in front of our children, those that we refer to as teachers, those who, facilitate, who lead these teachers, those that we call principals, are professionals. And as professionals, we have to have assumptions, we have to believe, and we know that we have to have a certain level of trust. So the other part to this that comes to me is community. 
is that as a school, and I think of school communities as a partnership between parents, teachers, school leaders, um, parent-teacher associations, and children. That's arguably the most important stakeholder in this conversation about education, which oftentimes we don't really talk about. But as a community, what is that? how does that community work? Because in a community, everyone has a role to play. We also have to think about education, not in the standpoint of what happens between the hours of 8.30 and 2.30 in your typical school in America, but what's happening outside the building? What are the roles all of us play? You know, Mike, you and I are both parents. Right. We can't make the assumption that that the that a child's learning is something that is essentially something we hand off to other people. That's a partnership. We've got to both be on the same page with our respective with our teachers as to what is going on in those classrooms as as contributors to the community. So there's a balancing act of being a contributor to a school community, but being mindful of what level of influence are you trying to enable there. You know, you mentioned the, the word community, uh, and it's a good buzzword because I think about it now in the midst of a global pandemic, um, virtual learning and what this has kind of done for both teachers and students, uh, parents as well, the challenges of um, staying at home, working from home, but having children that are enrolled in school in virtual learning at home and, and how that has either hindered or helped some students, how it has affected parents that have jobs that have to now help out with the virtual learning aspect and how it's affected teachers that now used to have classrooms filled with students where they can get individual attention now shifting over to virtual. How, how do you feel the pandemic has kind of at least strained some of this system? I think what it actually has done, it strains a good word for it. And I think that strain comes from the reality that the, the very clear inequality that we see just across the country plays itself out in American classrooms constantly. And what virtual learning brings to, brings to the table now is the reality of things as simple as internet access. You, know, you and I are on Zoom calls, pretty sizable bandwidth. Here we are having a virtual discussion, no problem there. We use Google Docs, we do show planning, all this stuff's happening in real time. But the assumption that every student in these virtual classrooms has that same level of access is a huge challenge. It's a very big assumption. And at the same time, you also have to think about from an instructional design standpoint, um, what does that mean to, in, to develop, develop instruction that's going to be geared to people who are learning remotely? A moment ago, we were talking about what do I think are the challenges in, in education. One thing I would also think about, and that connects directly to virtual learning, is this concept of, of what versus how. So oftentimes when we think about curriculum, we think about what it is that children need to learn. And I think there's a dangerous challenge here because what we're talking often about is imbuing knowledge. You know, a student needs to learn to add, something like that in kindergarten or first grade. And you don't really step back into how are they gonna do that? And learning theory is an important conversation to have. And it's something that I don't think we do nearly enough in this country to talk about pedagogy. That's a, that's a very important word here. It's the science of how children learn. So, for example, if you were to take someone like Howard Gardner, you know, Gardner puts forward the theory of multiple intelligences, and there's like eight of them. Of those eight, what you can find oftentimes is when we design curriculum, we tend to think of like the mathematical type of science, mathematical type of intelligence, and the linguistic one. And that breaks down into when we think about 
Um, and I'll use my experience as a coach, you know, oftentimes school leaders talk about their focus around ELA and math. It's a big, these two items come up a lot. And why do they come up a lot? Standardized testing. So we tend to put our emphasis around what we assess. And assessment, by the way, is another part that if we have time here, I'll talk a little bit about that. But going back to your point about virtual learning, you have to ask yourself from an instructional design standpoint, what are you expecting people to do? And when people sign into your virtual classroom, what are the learning activities that are happening? And what is the expectation for students in terms of what they're going to do independently? What are they going to do in your presence? You know, as a teacher, are you simply going to talk to people? Are you going to lecture? Because what we now know, the more you study learning theory, the more you understand that when people talk to you, if you're just sort of taking in input, you're only, depending on your age, there's only a matter of minutes that that's going to stop from a processing standpoint. Like you're not hearing enough in terms of what is the action step. But if learning is designed in a way that's constantly action-based, that, you know, here's a little bit of information, put it into practice. You know, one thing that sometimes we talk about in educational design is the idea of what's called a workshop model. It's a very simple strategy, but basically it breaks down to three key components. I do modeling, a model to use a student. We do, so collaborative teaching. So we're going to do this dance together. It's like learning how to dance. Finally, you do. You know, that's the independent component. And it's a stripped down, very simplistic model. But when you're designing virtual learning, you have to ask yourself, is that kind of the design? Or are you merely throwing up a lot of content, having people read all this or listen to it if it were a podcast, and then answering questions? And then you ask yourself the questions that you're asking. Like, what are you really trying to get people to do? And I think that when we think about the challenges, I think part of this is sort of using design thinking um, or to, you know, what Stephen Covey talks about in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, beginning with the end in mind. You know, what is your intended purpose and backwards plan to what activities are you going to have learners take on to arrive at your desired outcome? You know, Nick, you touched on something there that that I wanted to kind of harp on a little bit. Uh, and you were talking about in the virtual learning scenario where there are certain students that do have access to, let's say, computers and laptops to be able to perform these virtual learning. And then there's other instances, even in my own family, my mother-in-law, who's a teacher here in the Miami area, um, there are students that are you know, from lower economic backgrounds and, and they don't have access to this type of equipment. And I know Comcast did something uh, down here at an initiative to, to help students that didn't have internet access or, or at least couldn't afford internet access. They were helping them out when the pandemic first started to be able to get that internet access to do virtual learning. So I wanted to dive into this next um, question, which was really around the urban versus suburban education right? Um, I want to take myself as an example here. I, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, on 233rd and White Plains Road um, in the North Bronx section. Um, my, the high school that I would have went to if I hadn't moved in seventh grade up to Westchester County, that high school is ranked close to 11,000th nationally, okay? And it's ranked in the top 800 in all of New York, uh, the graduation rate is very low, you know, close to 17,000 nationally. And the enrollment uh, is predominantly Black and Hispanic students, 84% of the student population. And of that, 89% are economically disadvantaged. And this is from US News and World Report. By contrast, when I moved in seventh grade up to Westchester County in Harrison, New York, that school district is ranked in the top 400 nationally 
And the Harrison High School that I went to is ranked in the top 50 in New York State. And the predominant, uh, it's predominantly a, a white school, 70%, right? And economically disadvantaged students are around 17%. And I think that that really led me, and I didn't understand it at the time, you know, as an adolescent, where my parents are moving me from the Bronx and taking me out of my comfort zone. And now I realize it, it was to get me a better education, to move me to a suburban school that um, would, would uh, at least give me an advantage to get into a good college, which I did go to, to Rutgers University. And now it's, it's kind of led on to the, the career trajectory that I've had. So my question to you is, is really the urban versus the suburban, right? The haves versus the have-nots. What does that play into the education system? Because it's a huge issue, but it's danced around a lot and everyone knows what the issues are, but I would love for you to lay it out for our audience. Like what are the actual issues between the urban education system and, and the suburban education system. It's kind of like your first point, you know, you, you, we talk about in the entirety of the system, but here is clear statistical data to show there's disparities in between those two. Well, the first thing I would recommend for everyone is, is some literacy around this. And I, would, and I would offer to everyone to read Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel. You know, Kozel does a great job of reporting really that model you just talked about. What is the difference between the quality of education in these two different environments. Uh, something I'd also offer everyone to understand to, or at least to take a moment to ask yourself, what does it mean to have a quote unquote good school? You know, oftentimes you'll hear that, that term, I'm moving into a good school district. And after a while you have to ask yourself, what do you measure that by? And honestly, what comes up many, many times tends to be a racial breakdown. You know, schools that tend to be predominantly um, attended by white children tend to be perceived more likely as good schools. And there's a huge problem with that because I oftentimes when I'm presented with that discussion now about like, well, that's a good school and such, I like to ask that question, well, define good for me. And if you're gonna use standardized testing for a minute, I will counter that standardized testing by its design tends to be culturally biased. You know, you have to ask yourself for test makers, what exactly are you assessing? And again, that's that word again, I keep bringing up. But the other thing is, what is the audience for this assessment? Is this actually going to be on equal footing? Um, part of the, the disparity there, and I'll do a simple thought experiment with, all, with everyone. Take school out of this conversation for a minute. And if I were to just ask you, for a, for a child growing up in either an economically challenged environment or a, a less economically challenged environment, what is their life trajectory without school? It's still arguably going to be a disparity. So how does school play a role? Theoretically, school could be the way to level that playing field. The problem with that, though, is that when you think about funding for a minute, and let's just talk about money, this is always important here, is that school public funding or public school oftentimes is decided the way you sort of determine um, allocation is done partly on property taxes. So if you happen to live in an impoverished, impoverished neighborhood, there's going to be a lower tax base, which means that the school actually has access to less funds, which also then means a lack of materials, which also then means a more likely crumbling infrastructure. So here you are as a student, and it has nothing to do with you, um, which also I would also offer to listeners and viewers that there sometimes is a perception that students who are in less economically friendly environments by some weird nature, 
are not as equipped to be successful students in um, better economically, you know, better economic outlooks there. And I would say that's BS, honestly. Children are children. It's not so, this is not about them as individuals. It's about the environment that they're seeing as it plays out in school. Something else to be aware of too is when you look at urban environments, you have to be mindful of the, te the teachers there. Are those teachers teachers who are comfortable in those environments? Do you have situations where teachers are coming from neighborhoods? And this is kind of similar to what you hear sometimes about the police, but you have teachers that come from other communities that are working in communities, impoverished communities. Are they able to connect with children? Are they setting children up for success by creating a learning environment that's built on love, respect, and looking at a curriculum, a student-facing curriculum that that is telling students, like, you matter, you're important here. Right. I mean, oftentimes when we think of curriculum, and I'll use history as an example of this, um, you know, we're tending to look at a very Eurocentric view of American history. So here you are as a Black or Latino child learning about, you know, our founding fathers, you know, all white men, uh, and learning about the development and growth of this country. And you don't really hear a lot about people who happen to be of your skin color. And you ask yourself, well, what was our contribution? You know, did we have one? Or what about the contribution beyond this country of, of my ancestors? And when that's not talked about, there eventually becomes some form of dissonance where, like, what is this really meant for you? Was this actually designed for you? Even the books that we select that children read. So one thing I'm sort of painting here is this picture of, does sometimes school feel like an environment that's not actually targeted to black and Latino students? So I think that's the other part to this too. Um, but I would say that there's just a variety of these kinds of factors that paint a picture of what the differences are. But I think honestly, a huge change though is, is the economics. You know, how much are teachers being paid? You know, that's also important right. too. Uh, are they paid enough that they're gonna wanna stay? You know, are they actually earning a, a realistic living in this profession? You know, if you were to break down teacher turnover, you probably would see that there's a very clear disparity depending on districts. You could probably argue too that in, dis in school districts that happen to you know, have a larger tax base, teachers are more likely to stay. Why? Because they're better compensated. There's less likely a reason for them to leave. You know, um, I wanna go back to uh, my childhood experiences again. And I, I, I started to think about this as we were talking about this off air uh, and the education system. And I guess, you know, you, you kind of do a look back as you get older and now you start to realize, and we're both parents, we mentioned this earlier, um, you start to think about the situations your parents put you in, right? So in my scenario, what would have happened to me if I hadn't had the ability and my father and my mother didn't uh, move us out of the neighborhood that we lived in to be able to go uh, to a better school to better ourselves. So me and my sister could both go to college and graduate from college. Um, but I say that to get to our next topic, um, our question for you is really about college. Do kids need to go to college? Do, do children nowadays, um, as they're going into 10th, 11th and 12th grade, and they start taking the PSATs and the SATs, and they start thinking about what they want to do, do they need to go to college? It was always something that was emphasized throughout at least my childhood. Um, and, and you're a couple years older than me and, and both of us, I, I think you would echo the same thing. But now I feel like it's a little bit different. 
Um, and obviously there's other opportunities out there and the advent of social media has now created this world where people are finding different career paths that didn't exist years ago. So do kids need to go to college nowadays? I, I think the answer is becoming more no than yes. So I'm, I, I'm a little on the fence here because college gives you access to some pretty important life experiences, you know, one of which being that you get a chance to be able to get to know people of different backgrounds. And that's right. important and, from and a start, professional standpoint. And start a podcast with your friend uh, 20 well, years there's, later. There's, there's that. <laughs> right. um, but there's, so I think there is a worldliness that college can offer. But I say that from a certain level of conceit, because that's what I sort of point to. But in terms of what is the academic value, I would argue that what you're seeing in graduate programs that are more targeted to certain fields like medicine or business um, or, or psychology, what have you, that's where that concentrated learning sort of leads you more into a field that you're trying to get into. So if you were to say to me that, you know, you're looking to pursue an MBA and, you know, go into, you know, either starting a business, right? Um, I would ask, I probably would ask you, is, is an undergrad program really going to do it for you? Like if I were to ask Phil Knight, or and actually all of us could read Shoe Dog, you know, Phil Knight's autobiography, what was the value of college? I don't think you're going to see much. You know, let's, I mean, for example, Steve Jobs, you know, Steve Jobs points to, you know, at his time at, I forgot what college he'd gone to. Well, he gave this commencement address at Stanford, and you know, it's a famous uh, commencement address. But he talks about the cl calligraphy class he once took. And the calligraphy class was important to him because, I mean, this was a person who was a budding, you know, computer scientist or somewhere who basically was going into the direction of STEM is what we refer to it now, science, technology, um, engineering, mathematics. But what Jobs noticed in the calligraphy class is this idea of, of art. And it played a role actually in the design of fonts on the Macintosh computer. But small little things like that sort of opened people's eyes. Um, I think it's a question to me of, of what, what is college going to offer you? You know, is it a gate, is an automatic gateway to making more money? Well, likely, a lot of professions still probably require a degree. But, but the, to your point about social media, I think that's changed now. I do think the, the playing field continues to shift. I think that there are more access to different professions that a college degree may not necessarily be required of. So I do think it's a good question to ask yourself. I mean, if you're looking to, for example, going into a field in journalism, you know, and I'll use print journalism, for example, probably the best training you're going to get is the ability to learn how to interview, you know, the ability to learn how to write. Now, is going to college going to make you a better writer? Probably. But there are other ways to perfect the craft. And eventually, if you are submitting your work to an editor, are they going to ask what college you went to? Or are they going to be blown away by the writing pieces that you're submitting? It's probably more about the writing pieces that you're submitting. So college, in, in essence, has now kind of served it in, the, in prior generations, served it as a gateway. Like it was a given that if you didn't have a degree, certain professions weren't going to hire you. And that's still the case to some extent. But there is a growing market of, of fields that are not necessarily paying attention to that. And that said, I'd also make the argument for when you think of, when you think of vocational schools, you know, think about trade schools, and what are the type of professions that people want to get into? And that does those trade schools offer the same thing. At the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, like, where is your end goal? You know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish professionally? 
and then you backwards design it. And I would say that to any any young person listening to this show and asking themselves that very question about the value of college, I would say that I think there are some experiences that maybe now more so you don't necessarily need a degree to have, but um, but if the, if you're thinking of certain fields, I'd even ask people, you know, just kind of go around and find out from practitioners in the field, you know, what is crucial to to get to that place. Yeah, no, and I think it's a great point. I, the, the one thing I took away a lot from college, not only the life experiences and, and learning how to manage money while you're, you know, going to classes and also having part-time jobs was, you know, the field that I got into, journalism, the classes that were offered, the ability to shoot, edit, uh, write, and, and in real time. And then the relationships I made with teachers at the School of Communications that led me to my first job and working at WR Radio, which led to Fox News and things like that. So uh, relationship building, um, those are some of the things that, you know, for me, while education, we can, and we could argue whether or not the value of college, you know, monetarily and how it has gone up tuition rates and things like that. I can't put a price on that because I learned a lot of that stuff and was able to get uh, into this career uh, field because of that. Um, but this is a perfect segue into the last topic that I had for you, Nick, about this was um, at a federal level, we've seen a lot about the last four years with the Trump administration and the hiring of Betsy DeVos as the Department of Education head. Um, and admittedly so, I'm a little bit, um, don't know too much about some of the impact that she has had um, from not only uh, her, her attacks on public schools versus charter schools. I know there's been some articles about that. Um, and also there's been, specifically with the pandemic, um, some federal funding that has been withheld to schools that are not opening up versus that. I don't want to get into that, but can you take me through a little bit of what the Department of Education is supposed to embody and, and perform at a federal level besides the funding, which is obviously probably going to be the most crucial point, but also what her role over these last four years and, and the Trump administration has done to education either negatively or positively, if uh, what has happened to the system under her, her guidance and leadership? Well, I mean, I think what, what Secretary DeVos has sort of brought to this is that first off, there is, an, there is a, there's a slant against public schools. And I would ask anyone that notices that to ask themselves why, well, what is, why, why, why would you have a stance like that? For the Department of Education, a couple things you have to think about. One is most importantly, like most things at the federal level, it is a matter of finances. You know, federal for federal funding, we look at a couple of different programs. And I'll use Title programs in this example. So when you think of programs like Title One, Title One is additional funds that go to students who meet certain economic factors. You know, for example, students in public schools who receive free or reduced lunch, or actually in parochial schools too. Um, their access, they have, you know, they fall into a category that they receive additional funds. And those funds are typically used for teachers who provide additional services to those students. So the federal government is able to set budgets that allow schools to have access to this level of funding. So, so states, as a result, you basically report in to say what students would meet these qualifications. And you know, when we talk about federal, you're talking about your 1040. You know, what's reported on your taxes kind of helps to put you into those respective categories. Beyond federal or beyond funding, 
now you start to look at something at things like student loans, you know, helping to establish those student loan programs or maintain Pell Grant, per, maintain grant programs like Pell Grants. So a lot of tends to fall into a federal, into a, a financial jurisdiction. What's missing though, my argument here, is that in terms of setting a vision for education, the Department of Education is not going to do that. We saw a recent example of where that was the goal, that was the hope of it. And I'll use Arne Duncan's as a former Secretary of Education and with the rollout of the Common Core Standards. The Common Core Standards was an attempt by the federal government to put forward a mandate on what content should be taught at pretty much what grade level. It was one of the first attempts to start to nationalize education. In the political climate that we had then and now, states met with a certain level of resistance, certain, and some families did too. You know, because with those standards also came assessments. And those assessments, there was a lot of questions about where those assessments were being created. And they were created by organizations like Pearson. So you were getting back to standardized testing, which I would argue isn't really a great measure for a student's ability, especially in multiple choice tests, which by its design actually is simply done for the benefit of people who want to report data. It's not actually giving you a meaningful assessment of learning, but we can talk about that another time, I guess. Um, with an attempt of trying to nationalize what students learn and not how, remember I talked about pedagogy earlier, you got into a situation where states rightfully pushed back and said, how are you di dictating these terms? And the only way the federal government was able to try to have any sway on this was through the use of funds. You know, federal funding does go into states to support education. And the federal government at the time was arguing that, well, if you're not gonna adopt these standards, you know, perhaps maybe there's less funding that comes your way. And that's really the only hold that the federal government can have in any form of education discussion is by the purse strings. You know, 50 states, and again, we'll go back to the 10th Amendment, that is something that's determined by states. So when you talk about, or when you look at states designing their own curriculum, or when they have, um, you know, what content is in their textbooks. A famous example a few years ago was a graphic that sort of talked about the, the slave trade, you know, slaves that come from Africa. And the graphic had talked about, used this word that wasn't anywhere speaking to the slave trade. I think it used a word like visitors or something really, really whitewashed. And it was done by a, by a state that had impact on the textbooks. And as a result, you know, if you go to the classroom, students are learning that the people who were you know, put in chains and put into these little ships and brought over for, to provide free labor were essentially choosing to come. And in terms of our understanding of racial inequity, in terms of our understanding of really, how did we arrive here as a people in this country? That's a huge problem. So, but the federal government doesn't make decisions on that. States have that ability to do so. When you look at countries like Finland or Japan, and you see countries that have had these noticeable education turnarounds, typically what is the unifying con, what's the sort of a unifying theory of that is that at a national level, there was an understanding we need to change this system and here's how we're going to do it and essentially all territory within that country goes along with it in this country it's really 50 states 50 standards and then it becomes hard to figure out that from, from when you're determining curriculum and planning um i mean perfect example is state like um state licenses for teachers you know the fact that when you get licensed as a teacher in new york to move to say michigan can't just walk in with a New York license. You're going to have to probably get another license to teach. And I would offer 
why would that even be part of the discussion? Now, and there are nationalized teaching certification programs, but in, but the fact that we're talking about that based on the state that you're able to you know provide instruction makes you realize that states have different have different agendas when it comes to teaching. So to answer your question about the federal government, it's not a lot beyond beyond the financial components. You know, uh, I just thought of something as as we come back around, um, and we started at the top of the show with the current challenges in the education system. So I want you to put your your educator hat on, which you've had on the entire episode, but really think about um, what needs to change. We talked about in this episode um, at the top current challenges, throw in a global pandemic that has kind of stressed the system a little bit more, at least stress test the system from a virtual learning standpoint, not only teachers, but parents and students, the community effect, how everyone is feeling it in this pandemic. And then we talked about the economic disadvantages for people in, in low income urban areas versus the suburban areas and my experiences. Um, so those are just some parameters within this entire uh, model of issues that kind of persist throughout the education system. So how do we fix it? What needs to change? Does it need to be fixed? You know, it's a zero sum game for some people. Some people would argue maybe it doesn't need to be fixed, but we've clearly outlined in this episode a bunch of different issues that kind of exist at the local, state, and federal level. And just the disparities between schools, maybe a few 20, 30 miles away from each other. So what needs to change in the education, in the education system? In no particular order, first thing that comes to mind is our understanding of leadership. You know, when we look at school leaders, looking at the programs that design these leaders, I would make an argument that you know, teaching is a challenging field because it's this interesting marriage of science and art. You know, to help inspire someone to be a lifelong learner, to get someone really excited about any type of experience requires a certain talent, a certain skill set. Um, at the same time, you know, the ability to backwards design and think about different learning experiences to provide, be knowledgeable of the fact that your children come to you with different uh, learning preferences. There's a science to that. That middle point there speaks to the challenge, speaks to the, the reality of being a teacher. And like any professional, what is the opportunity for your growth and for your growth and support as a professional? Do you work for someone who is encouraging that? Or do you work for someone who simply looks at you as a grade level teacher or a subject level teacher and says, oh, here's your curriculum, here's your student roster, uh, I'll come over and you know observe you a couple times, make sure you're doing things by the book, whatever that means, and that's it. And I would ask that for any, and, and you can look at this as an example, but any successful school, a huge component of that is a leadership. You know, do you have people who lead these schools who are building a team? Because part of this challenge is encouraging environments that don't simply pigeonhole teachers into a grade level, they teach or a subject level, but that they're part of a community. And I use that word at the beginning and I'm gonna come back to it. Are people feeling like they're part of a community? Is there a space to look at students with respect, regardless of the grade level that they're in your building? You know, do we look at all of these children as being a member of a community? And as a school leader, you know, how do you set that? How do you set that table? Which is not an easy job. And I and I would ask anyone who's designed these programs or trying to figure out what, you know, what are the challenges of the school? 
probably start at the principal's office first to get a sense of what's going on. The second part to this is going back to this what versus how. We have to spend a lot more time asking ourselves, how are we designing environments that are conducive to learning? You know, for example, if you're trying to you know, teach, teach math concepts, what is the ability to connect real-world learning? Because oftentimes what you'll see, and children do this all the time, the ability to invent games. You know, they make up rules and they interact with their friends in a variety of different ways. But these are things that are constructs of the, the way they think that things should be, the way they interact with people. Right. From a curriculum standpoint, you have to ask, again, you've got to come back to pedagogy. And there's many, I mean, there's different ways um, to look at the how here. I mean, you can point to Bloom's taxonomy, which has been used for years, and just essentially, just a basically a um, a model that talks about like, you know, what, when you're designing instruction, are you just having people recall? Like, people read the story and say, "All right, tell me the characters of the story." Are you asking them to dive, do a deeper dive into plot and trying to figure out what is actually the story that's happening? What's the conflict between the characters? Have you trying to have people analyze or compare characters in the story and the sto and what they're trying to achieve? versus another story. Like cognitively speaking, what is actually happening? But that's one model. There's also Webb's depth of knowledge, which is the idea of like a four level system that takes these particular words and says like, what is the learning activity going on? And you can use it as a leveling exercise to say, okay, if I'm designing activities for students or for adults, is it coming, is it connected to these spaces? And by the way, when I talk about adult learning, that's a whole different field. Adult learning theory is very different than the learning theory as it relates to children or what we call pedagogy. As a building leader, you got to be aware of that. Or if you're a coach like myself, you have to be mindful of it. And one thing about adult learning theory speaks to choice. Adults need to have an active role in choosing the learning experiences that matter for them. Um, I think the other, the third that comes to mind is partnership. You know, as a parent, how am I invested? You know, it's not it's merely about, um, you know, holding my child accountable to what they're supposed to do in school, but how do I work in partnership with the teacher? Because education, little e, is this idea that everyone is invested in, in how a child learns and nurturing that. Because at the end of the day, the outcome has to be that children continue to be lifelong learners. Well, that was a really fun episode. Uh, Nick, it was awesome to get your insights on, on a lot of this. Um, I know you've been working in the business for so long um, and you're very knowledgeable on, on the subject matter. So it was great to get your insights for this episode. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be back next week with another installment of the Can We Please Talk podcast. Uh, we've got a couple of interesting guests coming up and topics over the next couple of weeks that we think you guys are really going to enjoy and you can check us out on our youtube channel can we please talk podcast or look uh, look us up on the apple or spotify podcast uh, i'm mike leon i'm nick severi uh thanks for watching everybody we'll see you next week